Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. Today, I am sitting down with David Garofalo. He is the CEO of Gold Royalty Corp. Um, he's someone that is super experienced in the gold industry. As a matter of fact, he was part of one of the largest mergers and acquisitions in the gold space, a legend in the space. I'm super excited to sit down with you, David. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Yeah, so I gave just a little quick bio on you. Um, you know, you're obviously a, a big player in the space. You have a really good background, a big background. Um, and so I'm super excited to talk to you. But why don't you just go ahead and fill in the audience a little bit, kind of uh, what you've been working on, maybe some of the big wins that you've had. Yeah, sir. I've been in the business for about 30 years, spent um, equal amounts of time both in the base and precious metal space, uh, running copper companies and, and uh, gold companies. Most recently, I ran Gold Corp, uh, which I merged with Newmont a little over a year ago to become the biggest gold producer in the world. Uh, and subsequent to that, um, I took on this new role with Gold Royalty Corp, uh, which is a 100% owned subsidiary of gold mining. Uh, we're going to spin that out into a separate standalone gold vehicle, public vehicle uh, that will allow us to participate in the rising gold price environment that we're all enjoying right now but really through top line exposure, uh, through a percentage of revenues as opposed to taking all the underlying mining risk, which I, typically attracts a much higher multiple than, than gold mining companies typically do. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been with some other companies as well. I saw Agnico, Eagle Mines, Hud Bay Minerals. I mean, those are both pretty big, reputable companies in the space as well. You kind of browsed over those, but that's big. Yeah, you know, for, for sure. And, I, you know, over my 30-year career, I've been involved in the construction of 12 mines globally. Um, and, and that's quite a bit over a 30-year career. Yeah. Mines are very difficult to build. From discovery uh, to initial production, typically it takes 15 to 20 years uh, to build a new mine and get it up into operational status. So in many of those circumstances, I was taking on a project midstream and bringing it through the construction phase, de-risking it, bringing it up into commercial production. And so that's a dozen plus basin gold, uh, gold mines over my 30-year career. So I've got quite a bit of experience, fundamental experience in the sector that, that informs uh, our strategy at Gold Royalty. Yeah, wow. So uh, 15 mines uh, over a 30-year career, or I'm sorry, you said a dozen, a dozen, right? Uh, but you said it typically takes about 15 years to get them up and running. Um, but you typically would get them uh, maybe kind of as like a junior producer instead of like let someone else explore it and then pick it up kind of at a junior producer? That's exactly right because the the risk tolerance for a junior explorer is, is much higher. Um, it's... it's um, a very low success ratio uh, during the discovery phase um, and the highest risk component, the value creation equation in the mining. So typically the juniors are uh, really focused on that kind of entrepreneurial mindset, putting that risk capital to work in the ground. And, and if they're successful one out of 20 times, that's pretty good. So really? generally as producers, we like to get involved when they delineated a resource that's substantial enough for us to build into a mine. So typically that could be 10 years into the exploration cycle. Wow. And then we're bringing it through the construction phase and taking our balance sheet and taking our mind building expertise and leveraging that into these exploration success stories. So it's very, very uncommon, for example, for a junior explorer to become a, an operator. Typically, they sell out at the point they delineated that resource to a significant enough scale that it attracts a producer that's looking to replace their depleting asset base. 
So if you look at the industry overall, just from a high level, just for people that don't really know, um, is it kind of like maybe four levels? You kind of have like the major producers, the junior producers, like the junior explorers, and then the, the explorers, would you say? Or how would you yeah, break that? Yeah, give or take, you probably combine the latter two into one group, and maybe it's three groups. Okay. So you're right, you have the senior producers that t- tend to have big balance sheets, access to cheap capital because of their scale. Uh, they have um, a legion of people that can build and engineer and operate these these operations that you know you're not going to find in the junior explorer. The mid tiers have less of that capacity, but they certainly have more capacity than the junior explorers. So they tend to look at the smaller deposits. Um, you know, the the bigger producers, the senior producers in our sector are looking for elephants. You know, because they're producing vast amounts of of gold uh, on, on an annual basis, and they need big deposits to replace what they're depleting on a year in year out basis. And it seems like the way it works is, I mean, the industry, it kind of feeds up, right? So you kind of have the guys out there exploring and then they go into the junior producers and then the, eventually then they'll be ripe for a merger into the, into the majors. Yes. Scale matters because it is a very capital intensive business. The bigger you are, the more liquid you are in terms of your equity valuation, um, the more likely you're going to have a low cost of capital. Um, because typically you're spending hundreds of millions or billions to build out new mines. So you need access to capital. The barriers to entry are very high. Um, so you don't see a lot of uh, companies in the senior producer space. It's a very small universe. In fact, if you took the market cap uh, of all of the, the gold producers in the world, it's still a fraction of what Apple's market cap is. Right. Buying basis. So it's not a big industry. And so when you're starting to see generalist money come into the space in a significant way as the gold price is appreciating, it really is, and I've used this analogy before, like trying to get a, a herd of elephants through a keyhole. You know, mm. it's a very, very small sector. And, it, you know, you, you'll blow the doors off when that happens. Um, and, and, and that has happened in past cycles. Uh, we haven't quite experienced that yet. We've seen a rise in gold price, um, or gold price and gold equities, but not, certainly not to the degree that we saw in the last bull cycle 10 years ago. But that's coming in my view. Yeah. So the last bull cycle was what, like 2008 to 2011? Yeah. Coming out of the credit crisis, in fact, I say 10, 11, 12, when gold achieved over $1,900 an ounce in, in, that, in those days, in $2011. And we're obviously, uh, uh, have exceeded that um, in 2020, uh, where we've um, exceeded $2,000 an ounce for a brief period of time. We're just above 1900 an ounce now. Um, but it's it's quite a bit different dynamic than it was 10 years ago because 10 years ago, we were in the midst of the super cycle as well, um, where China was growing um, at very, very high rates and was consuming a lot of base metals, you know, copper and zinc as they were industrializing their economy and urbanizing their population. We're not experiencing that right now. Um, Chinese growth is muted. We've had trade wars. And so I would say global growth has been anemic. So the base metals have not participated uh, to the degree that gold has over the last year or so. Um, and so we don't have rapid cost inflation uh, that we saw 10 years ago that eroded the leverage proposition that gold equities were supposed to provide. We saw actually costs um, inflate higher than the gold price did 10 years ago. That's not the case now. Costs are very, very stable in the gold sector. In fact, they've been going down because of two factors. One, energy prices have been muted and, and decreasing. And we're an energy intensive business. We use a lot of diesel and big open pit mines. And so that's brought our costs down. The other thing is the U.S. dollars remain strong relative to other currencies. So if you're producing gold in Australia, South Africa, or parts of Latin America, 
you're enjoying a weak local currency that's keeping your input costs low. So this is a sector that's actually deleveraged, generated free cash flow, paid increasing dividends, and bought back stock. You know, we're doing the things that real businesses do that we weren't able to do 10 years ago when we saw rapid cost inflation. So it's a very, very different dynamic right now. And, and it's a good place for a generalist investor to be, in my view. Yeah. Wow. There's so much I want to dig into. And just so for everybody listening, um, I want to dig in a little bit to what you just said about the cost going down and where we are in the market cycle. I want to really find out about uh, the new project that you're working on right now. Uh, I want to kind of dig into that. I want to dig into gold mining versus gold royalty. And then uh, I really want to get your idea from a 30 year veteran of what you're seeing as far as really drivers of gold. So just for everyone listening, make sure you stick around for all that. But um, back to what you just said, um, you talked about how in the last in the last cycle, really it was like China was building up and was consuming a lot of base metals, copper, et cetera. And 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 I guess the way I understand it is that as you're pulling copper out of the ground, typically you're getting gold and silver as well, right? And so maybe those were kind of like uh, extra. Whereas today, maybe you're just mining directly for gold. Is that well? well they're they're both um, you know single metal deposits or mines and polymetallic deposits. Uh, like you're describing that have other metals. Um, but a lot of the gold production that we're seeing today is coming from single purpose gold, gold assets. Um, okay. uh, and, and you can't, you know, if you're talking about a poly polymetallic mine, you can't selectively mine one metal versus the other, because typically in a ton of ore, you're going to have all the metals uh, that right. report into that deposit. And so you really have very little uh, elasticity of, of supply to price. You're not going to be able to, uh, cherry pick the metals that you want to recover because your your plants, your your industrial complexes are set up to recover all of the metals at the same time. Got it. Now I, I'm curious because you we talked about like the the drivers and uh, China, you know, building and now that's kind of slowed down, um, and that was kind of the catalyst for gold back then. Um, but today we don't have that, as you said, trade wars and so forth have stifled that. But yet we still see gold having a big demand. So it looks like the drivers of the demand, the catalyst for gold's price are different now than they were in the last boom. Um, yes and no. Um, uh, back then supply of gold was increasing. Um, so that, you know, helped, I think if anything undermined the demand supply fundamentals of gold, but demand was outpacing even the supply increases we saw then. But uh, mine supply of gold has actually peaked out. Uh, we've seen reserves decline by about 50% over the last seven years. So we've got everything going for gold right now. We've had strong, very robust demand for a number of factors I'll talk about in a minute. But mine supply is coming down simply because we haven't been replacing what we've been depleting over the last seven years. We haven't put money back into the ground into expiration. Yeah. And so we, we've seen a steady depletion of reserves in the ground over the last seven years, again, by 50%. And so everything, the stars are aligning both in terms of demand and supply. On the demand side, really what's driving it is what drove it 10 years ago. 10 years ago during the credit crisis, interest rates plummeted. Right. And gold, if you think about it, is not really a commodity. It's a currency. It's a currency. It has been a currency for millennia. You know, yeah. the US dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the euro, they're all Johnny-come-latelys to the currency market. They've only been around for, you know, hundreds, low hundreds of years. Gold has been a currency for 4,000 years. Yep. What drives one currency to go up relative to another is relative interest rates. And, you know, sovereign debt today across the world is yielding effectively zero and to negative 
on both a nominal and real basis. Gold has always yielded zero, but zero looks pretty good in a negative interest rate environment. Yep. So it's seen as a store of value. So that's why that currency is going up relative to the US dollar, relative to the euro, relative to the Australian dollar. There's a competitive debasement of fiat currency going on right now on a coordinated global basis. In other words, the central banks are printing money with reckless abandon. And they're doing that because the governments are strapping on unprecedented levels of debt. Um, and we're seeing central banks not only buy that debt, but they're buying corporate debt as well. And they're doing that with printed money. Yeah. So that's undermining uh, the value of their paper currency. Obviously, if there's an infinite supply of this paper currency, which there is, uh, it really it's only limited by whether a printing press, press can run or not, um, then gold is going to go up because it's quite finite in quantity. And just to give you a visual about how finite gold quantity is, since the beginning of time, there's been 200,000 metric tons of gold mined. That's all the gold that's on surface right now. If you put that into an Olympic-sized swimming pool, it would fill four swimming pools. It's wow. tiny. So it's a minute quantity, uh, physically speaking. And so you can imagine um, as capital starts to get reallocated uh, to uh, this currency, to this commodity, gold, it doesn't take a lot to move it dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's an amazing picture that you paint. And it's something that I talk about a lot. Um, I, I talk a lot about Fed policy, interest rates and things like that. And so, yeah, you know, you used to be able to put your money into government bonds and it was pretty much safe. It was the safest place to be. But now I think half, I think half of the world's bonds are negative yielding. And even the, even the, the U S uh, bond is, is in real rates, it's negative, right? Because it's, it's not keeping up with inflation. And so it's got a negative carry. So you're either guaranteed to lose money and hopefully still get it back with a government bond or at least not lose money with gold, right? And so, of course, it's going to push people into gold. Um, so that's a good point. I think that, and, and I think really if you understand that point that you made, which was done so well, um, there's really no way out of this. Right. I mean, the governments are kind of stuck now. They have to keep going. Right. They have to inflate their way out of debt. Um, you know, and, and in the modern era, and I'm talking about the modern economy, economy post World War II, there never really has been a repayment of sovereign debt. It's right. been an inflation out of it. In other words, growing the GDP to a sufficient level where debt is a small enough percentage of the economy in order to sustain it. And that's effectively what they're trying to do is just inflate. Uh, the GDP to a point where the debt becomes a smaller percentage. But right now they're just strapping on debt just because underlying e economic activity was muted pre COVID, but now it's almost non-existent. Yeah. And so in order to sustain lifestyles, to sustain any sort of economy, they're having to spend uh, copious amounts of, of government expenditures, social payments and the like in order to sustain some economic activity. And that means ever increasing amounts of debt. Yeah. Now, um, one thing that I hear from people when I talk about uh, gold and I, I see all the comments on the videos and they say, well, I'm not going to buy gold now because we're at all time highs. So what would you say to that comment? Well, on a nominal basis, we're, we're there. On a real basis, we're not even close. Um, and so uh, you and I were talking before we recorded here about Merrill Lynch's prediction of $3,000 gold over the next couple of years. Right. They did not pull that number out of their hat. Um, where that number came from is if you look at the previous real peak in gold, which was $850 an ounce in 1981, if you express that in today's dollars, that's actually $3,000 an ounce. Oh, wow. 
really that's where that numbers come from. So we're not at real all-time highs for gold. We're still 50% off from that. But, you know, in 1981, yes, we had hyperinflation. Or we were just coming out of a hyperinflationary era that people my age would remember. But, but um, uh, you know, we're, we're entering into that. And gold is a barometer of that. But we haven't had the un- kind of unprecedented uh, printing of currency back in the 80s that we do now. Right. Um, this, this, is, uh, this is incredible. I mean, Jerome Powell is quoted as saying, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a striking statement for a central bank governor to say. He's even abandoned uh, the inflation targets, it, or he doesn't talk about them anymore. He talks about employment levels. Yep. So that he's trying to print his print an economy. Um, it, you know, if there isn't any tangible underlying economic wealth created uh, from your economy, that's unsustainable. If all you're doing is printing, well, that currency is just going to be devalued. Um, we're going to have hyperinflation. Uh, like the Weimar Republic had in Germany post World War One, that's what we're facing. Right, um, and and that those you know in, in that circumstance, gold is going to go through the stratosphere, in my view. Yeah, I know. Um, in your you know in your position, you you could take a little more conservative stance. For myself, just being a, an analyst online, you know, I've talked about if if you look at after the the credit crisis in two thousand eight, gold bottomed at about six eighty, rallied to almost two thousand, based off of the response right of the money printing that happened, as you said. And so that moved from 680 to 19, whatever, almost $2,000. If you look at that, if we had just that same move, that puts gold at like over $4,000 an ounce. But the response that we've had has been, you know, many, many times more than what they had in 2008 as far as the, the stimulus response. So um, if we had just the same size move, we're looking at over 4,000 and it could be even more than that. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and another way to play gold, and I like to talk about is silver. Um, you know, silver uh, is in the 20s right now, uh, but in a bull market typically trades at a 40 to 1 ratio to the gold price. Well, today we're at 70 to 1. So if you think gold is going to three or $4,000 an ounce, then silver will outperform gold percentage-wise by three to four times right. um, based on past bull cycles. There's ways to play the precious metal market. You know, there's gold directly, there's silver, uh, and then there's the equities, uh, which provide uh, if they're managed properly outside of leverage to the gold and silver prices. Yeah. Now we saw, um, we saw recently big news where uh, good old uncle Warren Buffett decided to jump into gold after he's been saying he hated it for so long. Um, I think if you understand why he didn't like gold and then you, you know, he didn't want to buy something that just sat there and did nothing, but he bought a gold mine. It kind of makes sense. Is that what you saw? What's, what's kind of the, the, what's the ear to the ground in the gold industry having to say about that? Well, you know, Warren Buffett is a value investor, um, and so he's not seen value in the general equity markets. Uh, the types of valuations and multiples we've seen uh, relative to the underlying economy are unprecedented in the general equity markets. So the value has been stretched beyond recognition. Yeah. It's crazy up there. So as a value investor, he's probably looking at that and saying, well, I, I'm going to stay in cash or stay near cash. This is something that will preserve my capital. Well, cash is being undermined. Uh, by printing a fiat currency. So he's concerned about staying in cash and he's not getting paid any yield for staying in cash. So he's looking at gold and, and saying, you know what, there's value there and there's certainly value in the gold equities because we're still not at cyclical peak for the gold equities that we saw 10 years ago. Uh, among the producers, we're, we're getting close to that level, but we think gold still has quite a bit of runway to go. And I'd say gold equities producers are probably discounting right now somewhere around fourteen to $1,500 an ounce. And the developers 
are still only at about 50% of their cyclical peaks from 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and you know what? What's changed from 10 years ago is gold production was increasing 10 years ago. All the producers had things in construction. They were growing their production bases out now, back then. Now, uh, you know, 10 years later, they've depleted their reserves by 50%. Guess what? If they're not finding it, they're going to have to buy it. Right. They're going to have to start to buy the developers and explorers who have not participated to the same degree they did 10 years ago in the gold price rally. Right. And so the runway for, for valuation expansion among developers and explorers is immense in my view. And that's why I'm involved in that part of the sector right now. Rather than running an established producer, which I've done virtually my entire career, I'm focusing on the development stage and the royalty companies. And in gold mining, we have a collection of 14 development stage assets, which collectively have about 25 million ounces of reserves and resources in the ground. You know, there are a lot of senior producers that don't have that in terms of their reserve portfolio. So this is meaningful. It really will meet the need that these producers are going to have quite acutely in the short term. And so I think if you want outsized leverage to the gold price, I think you want to be in the development stage companies. So yeah. as a mind builder, I appreciate what these development stage companies do, the service they do to the industry in filling their pipelines. And that's why I'm involved with gold mining. And what we're trying to do with gold royalty is daylight value in those 14 development stage assets by writing royalties on each of them and putting it into a separate company. And the royalty companies have really almost acted as a banker to the mining, uh, the mining sector because they provided cheap capital to help fund the construction of mines. So in other words, in exchange for a royalty, they provide upfront capital to the mining companies to help build their mines. Yeah. And the reason the royalty companies are able to get such cheap uh, access to capital is because uh, they're trading typically three to four times the multiple that the gold mining companies are. Yeah, and the, the royalty piece of the mining sector is definitely an area that not, not as many people know about it as they probably should. And I do get asked questions about it. So let's dig into that a little bit. So basically, these royalty companies kind of put up the seed money to these mining companies. And in exchange, they're guaranteed back um, the metals at a fixed price. Is that right? So they're, they're buying just the streaming from it. So they don't have to put up any of the risk or the effort. They just get a return on their money. That's precisely right. They don't take any capital expenditure risks. They don't take any operating cost risks. Um, all they have is a percentage of the revenue uh, of the top line that they get back in return for the money they put up to help build the mines. And so what they also get, which is very, very important, is exposure to geological upside. So if they've helped fund a mine that grows geologically after it's been put into production, say through exploration efforts, because quite often you don't define the full reserve life when you start construction and start operation. Right. As you gain access uh, through production deeper and deeper into the mine, you get better access for exploration drilling and your, your deposits tend to grow. So you might have defined a 10 or 20 year reserve life up front. That might go to 30 or 40 or 50 years. Well, the royalty company retains uh, the exposure to that exploration upside, that optionality that comes through the exploration success of the operator. And that's where the, the royalty companies really make outsized returns. Uh, yeah, they get a, a reasonable return on the percentage of the revenue they expect from the reserves that were defined when it was first put into production. But when there's exploration success and the mine life gets, gets extended by decades, that adds uh, immeasurably 
uh, to the return proposition for royalty companies. And so you're getting leverage to the gold price. So as the gold price goes up, the percentage of revenue doesn't change, but the revenue grows. And so that absolute dollar amount of royalty goes up as the gold price goes up. And as they have expiration success, you get that leverage as well in the royalty company without the exposure to operating cost risks and capital cost risks that mining companies have to manage on a day-to-day basis. So to break that down, the company has to manage all those costs and um, top line revenues going out to the royalty company. And so basically the company has to manage all the costs and whatever profit is there, they get. But the royalty company doesn't have to wait for profit. They get top line revenue. Exactly. Okay. So from, a, from an investor standpoint, investing in a royalty company could be a safer bet because the kind of the, the revenue stream is a little bit more guaranteed. Yeah, and plus, I think increasingly the mining companies will need the royalty companies to help finance uh, the the reinvestment back into new production. Because as I said, uh, gold production's peaked out, reserves peaked out seven, eight years ago. So the mining companies are going to have to start building again. They're going to have to start buying these development stage assets, and they're going to need significant amounts of capital to do so. As I said, the barriers to entry are very high in the gold mining space, because typically you're spending hundreds to billions of dollars to build new mines, long lead times. So it's not for the faint of heart. So they need access to non-traditional sources of capital other than just bank financing. And you can't, you know, you can't build a house with a credit card. You need long-term secure financing. And so what the royalty companies provide is through access to the equity markets, much higher valuations is much cheaper capital for these mining companies to build their mines up. Yeah. Now, um, you've mentioned a couple of times how the reserve uh, resources have peaked out. And I really want to dig into that because I think, um, you know, we already talked about the, the catalyst, the driver of gold with negative yielding debt um, and the endless printing. Um, so that's one of the drivers. But I think the other driver is going to be that reserve peaked out. Um, so those two things together, I think, really are, are powerful. But before we dig into that, I kind of want to stay back into this royalty. So um, you are uh, you've you you spearheaded or were, were instrumental in one of the largest gold mergers in the world. Um, and now you're kind of working for a small company. Um, and it's a, it's a royalty company. Now, um, I believe that uh, I, from, you know, from, from my investor standpoint, I always love to follow the team, follow good people. So someone like you who's had a tremendous track record, I want to continue to bet on you. And so it's interesting to see you go from one of the largest mergers in the world now to a smaller company that happens to be a royalty company. So tell us about that and, and, and why you did that, I guess. Uh, you know what? I've done that actually my entire career, uh, whether I, you look at my base metal um, initiation back in the 1990s running InMet Mining, which became, you know, went from a $2 stock to $100 stock on, on the copper side. Agnico Eagle, which went from a $100 million market cap with 200 employees to a $10 billion market cap with 5,000 employees and six mines from one mine. Um, I like to start with something small, uh, take an entrepreneurial vision and grow it to something substantial. Gold Corp started off as really uh, the an idea, a concept in Ian Telfer's mind. Ian was my chairman at Gold Corp and he went from zero to $10 billion valuation when we ultimately merged it with, with Newmont. So um, you really have to start with a, a concept, an idea and then build it out through M&A. And that's what we're trying to do with this gold royalty vehicle is we're starting with this initial portfolio of 14 royalties underwritten on the 14 deposits that gold mining owns. We're going to spin it out into its own public vehicle and then use that currency 
to continue to transact, to fund new mine development, to acquire other royalties and create that critical mass and continue to lower our cost of capital so we can effectively act as a bank for the mining sector. So right now, um, right now it's just working with uh, gold mining, um, but the plan is to then turn it into its own company where then it's working with a bunch of different mining companies. That's exactly right. So while we're not a public vehicle now, Gold Royalty, we're 100% owned by Gold Mining. Gold Mining is a public vehicle. Um, it trades it under the symbol Gold, G-O-L-D, hard to forget on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We also trade on the over-the-counter market um, in, in New York. Um, and so you can, you can play it that way. And so if you buy Gold or Gold Mining, uh, you're going to get the royalty vehicle for free as a shareholder. Not that different than, you know, McDonald's and Chipotle. Back in the day when Chipotle was uh, created within McDonald's, if you bought McDonald's, you got Chipotle for free, and that was spun out to the shareholders of McDonald's. Um, you know, we're going to look at a variety of ways to maximize value for gold mining shareholders, whether it's a spin out, an IPO, a dividend back to shareholders. I can assure you whatever we do is going to maximize value for gold mining shareholders. So if you're buying the stock today, you're going to get a, a value creation opportunity when we create this gold royalty vehicle that's going to accrue back to you as a gold mining shareholder. Yeah. Now, um, I, did, I did talk briefly about gold mining um, in a video maybe about a month ago. Um, so I did talk about that a little bit, but I haven't talked to anybody from the company. You're the first person. So I thank you for, for coming on. Um, but I would like to hear directly from you a little bit more about that company, maybe about the mines that you're working on. Um, like I said, it's been about a month since I did that video, but I remember, I mean, it was a, 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 it looked like a very significant amount of resources that you're sitting on that are ready to be developed. That, that's exactly right. And, and the interesting thing, Amir Adnani, who is the founder of Gold Mining, um, and he's the chairman of Gold Mining, brought me on to run the Gold Royalty Vehicle, but also put me on the advisory board of Gold Mining. The reason he did that is he wanted to leverage my, uh, my experience and expertise in mine building uh, and de-risking projects. And so we're going to be pivoting gold mining uh, to, to uh, rather than just inventory ounces, which they've done very cost effectively the last 10 years, to actually de-risking these assets through bringing them through economic studies, feasibility studies, in order to demonstrate the economics of these deposits at $1,900, $2,000 ounce gold. And it'll be very, very attractive to the established producers. My expectation is we'll start to joint venture uh, these projects with the established producers in order to put money in the ground, de-risk these assets, and daylight value. Now, just to put that into perspective, when Amir bought these deposits, these 25 million ounces across 14 deposits, he paid on average only 2 to $3 an ounce because he bought them at the bottom of the market, the bear market that we experienced in gold yeah. until really the last year. And right now, they're trading at about $15 an ounce in the ground. Well, typically, established development stage assets, producers traded hundreds of dollars per ounce. So you can see the potential value proposition here as we de-risk these assets and create a path forward to developing them and turning them, them into productive mines. The re-rating potential is immense. Uh, so the, the value creation that we hope to accrue to our shareholders at Gold Mining, we think is significant as we start to attract interest and capital from some of the established producers in the sector. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that I remember reading about how he had gone around and acquired all these different companies in that, in that bear market. And I love that. I, I got my, I kind of cut my teeth when I was uh, started about 18 years old. I started buying uh, bank owned repos houses and fixing them up and selling them. And, and, and that's really kind of been the focus of my career is always looking for that undervalued asset 
kind of that hated asset that, that has that potential. And so I remember that story and that's kind of what attracted me. And I mean, the timing, right? So it, gold peaked in 2011 and it's been in this bear market. And so he went around, scooped up these assets really cheap just in time for the market to turn and start going back up. It sounds like. Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, um, you, you want to be buying the farm in the winter if you can, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what Amir did. Um, and, you know, he bought them when gold was $1,100, $1,200 an ounce and nobody was building anything. Nobody was focused on that. You know, again, you know, the gold companies came out of a, a period where their costs had inflated dramatically and they were focused on bringing their costs back down, generating uh, returns on, on their capital and paying dividends, buying back stock, and they really spent nothing in the ground on development or exploration. And so that's when Amir was accumulating these assets and putting them in inventory. So we're going from inventorying or warehousing these ounces to incubating them now and, and creating development stage assets that are attractive to the producers that are starved for growth. Right. So I think that kind of leads us back to the question that I wanted to ask, which you had mentioned a couple of times before about the reserves being peaked out. And so it sounds like to me, so I remember back, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, a dozen years ago, the world was operating on this peak energy, you know, model. We thought we were going to run out of oil, which was proven to be false. Um, but you've talked about resources, gold resources peaking out. And I've heard people even throw out, you know, peak gold which I don't, I don't necessarily believe, but it seems like to me, it was really because through that bear market, nobody was investing into exploration or development. Is that, which one is it? That, that's exactly right. And, and literally until four or five months ago, the junior explorers couldn't raise a dime to save their lives. Mm. Um, when I was running Gold Corp, I, I set up an incubator fund of $200 million uh, in order to invest in the gold juniors because otherwise they would have they would have gone into extinction, which would not have served the industry well at all. Right. We need those explorers to be successful to replace what we're depleting on a day in day out basis. You know, by definition, mining companies are a collection of finite life assets and every day they produce an ounce of gold, they die a little bit. Mm. So if somebody's not reinvesting back into the ground to replace those depleting resources and we needed the juniors to do that, then, then the sector has an existential crisis. Um, and so now the juniors are actually getting access to capital markets because we're starting to see some generalist money come in into the space. And so the explorers are getting some risk capital again. But again, they're still not at the level they were 10 years ago. There's still about half of the valuations that were 10 years ago when we had a, a, you know, a raging bull market for gold you know, post the credit crisis. Um, so there's still a lot of runway for these juniors and, and we do need them to be successful. Yeah, it looks like when you look at, you know, I'd asked you that question earlier about gold being back to an all-time high, but when you look at the gold miners, the Huey index or whatever, compared to the price of gold, you know, they were pretty caught up in 2011, but today it looks like they're lagging way behind the physical. And is, is that partly because of what you just explained? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's it, um, because they don't have that growth element anymore. Um, and so I think they are discounting somewhere around fourteen to $1,500 an ounce in their valuations currently, not the 1900 to $2,000 an ounce that we're enjoying. And so the market's still not quite believing these gold price levels, but I don't see this as the peak. I see this as the floor. Right. Uh, the incentive price to build new gold, mi gold mines is likely north of this. Otherwise, there would be new mine construction. There is no significant new mine construction going on right now. And so that tells you that the current price is not incentivizing that. It has to be higher in order yeah. to incentivize new supply. 
Now, I always talk about, you know, I talk about a lot of different investing topics and assets. And I always, I think everything always boils down to supply and demand. Like at the end of the day, right? Everything boils down to that. And you even hinted to the, the, the supply of gold is, is pretty limited. And so it seems like if um, there's been this underdevelopment happening for the you know last decade or whatever in gold, um, we have you know the res the reserves that we have are kind of peaked out. Um, then, but now we're having this huge demand for gold, and so it's going to create this kind of mismatch, which then leads the majors to need to start acquiring these these miners pretty quickly as fast as they can, which is just going to drive the price up. Is that accurate? Yeah, look, I, I think that will drive valuations because as I said earlier on, if you're not finding it through exploration success, you're going to have to buy it. Uh, I mean, the reason Newmont and Gold Corp merged um, a year and a half ago is because both companies were faced with declining reserves and they were worried about descaling in the marketplace and seeing their multiples erode. Scale does matter, particularly general equity investors who are buying Apple and, and financial institutions they're looking at you through the same lens as the gold companies are looking at technology companies and, and banks. And so if they see declining reserves, declining underlying value and declining liquidity, they're less likely to buy you. So that scale is extremely important to track that incremental investor. Yeah. 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 Now, um, jumping back into the gold royalty company for a little bit, just cause I'm so fascinated with that. I know, I know you and Amir have kind of put together a pretty, pretty good team. Uh, I'm guessing some of that team is probably people that you've worked with in the past that you've kind of had success with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there are a number of individuals we attracted Ian Telfer, who was my chairman at gold corp, uh, and founded one of the first streaming companies, gold streaming companies in the world called Silver Wheaton about 15 years ago. It was spun out by Gold Corp. So he is really the father of gold streaming. He created the, the entire financial model. We've been able to bring him in as a chairman of our advisory board. And obviously he brings an incredible network, um, both in terms of assets we can look at and people that we can access in order to get the opportunities we need to grow it the gold royalty vehicle. We also brought in Warren Gilman, who runs Queen Roads Capital in Hong Kong and manages Lee Kai Shing's money. Um, and they're, uh, they've been active investors in the gold space now for a number of years. And, and Warren, as an ex-Canadian investment banker, has been um, in, in Asia and Australasia for about 20 years now, uh, doing just that, getting uh, the non-traditional investors in Asia into the gold space in a meaningful way. Um, and beyond that, I brought in John Griffith, who ran for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, their mining franchise. Um, he's brought in to be uh, our chief development officer. So he's the guy out there looking for merger and acquisition opportunities for our gold royalty vehicle. And then within gold mining itself, I brought in an ex-colleague of mine from Gold Corp, Alistair Still. Alistair is, a, is an accomplished mine builder. He ran mines and he also ran the corporate development function uh, for our Canadian business uh, at Gold Corp. And so he brings a wealth of, of technical and capital markets experience into the gold mining vehicle. So really, as I said, we're pivoting gold mining from just being a warehouser of gold ounces to actually incubating these things. Alistair has been charged to do that. So he, he understands what it takes to de-risk these development stage assets to attract the interest of outside investors, of other producers to put money into the ground uh, to create a daylight value for gold mining shareholders. Now you mentioned uh, to de-risk these things. And so as an investor, uh, sometimes optimism runs a little bit too high, but we always have to manage our downside, right? Uh, we always have to stay in the game. So I'm curious, what are the risks that, um, that you're watching out for that we should be watching out for as investors? 
Well, you know, what we're trying to do is define something geologically through drilling. Um, and until you mine it, you don't know exactly what you have. You can, through uh, geological and statistical means, you can estimate what you have in the ground to a fairly high degree of, of, of confidence. But until you mine it, you don't know. So there's always that geological risk. And as mines mature, it becomes much less risky. But that point of maturation uh, of, of construction, commissioning, that's where the highest risk is and the highest capital intensity is. That's where the significant risk is. So when I talk about de-risking, what we want to do is delineate these deposits sufficiently that the geological risk is quite low. And we also want to put capital into engineering uh, the uh, feasibility studies to bring these projects into productive mines. And so really, Alistair's been charged, Alistair Still, who's brought in as Chief Development Officer of Gold Mining, he's been charged with building out the project teams to do that de-risking, uh, to bring this down to a sufficient level and to daylight value in the marketplace. Because as I said, gold mining's assets are only trading at $15 to $20 an ounce. So it's already discounted a lot of that risk into the valuation. Right. And typically, assets of this size are trading in the hundreds of dollars an ounce, particularly in low political risk jurisdictions in the Americas where all of these assets are exclusively located. So the market's not quite believing uh, the story yet. And, and Alistair's job is to come in and, and make the market believers because these are substantial assets in, in a market and in an industry that's, that's starved for these types of assets. So where are you in that process? Like how, how far along are you to, I guess, get more of the reserves certified or whatever the process is? Well, the good thing is it's not all, all our eggs in one basket. We have 14 assets within that portfolio in gold mining. And so we have really big ones and we have medium sized ones and small ones. So we're not uh, hanging our hat hoping that one big producer will come in and, and buy the portfolio. We have assets that will appeal to bigger producers, medium sized producers and small producers. And what we'll do is stage gate each of these, pro these projects uh, to a sufficient level that you know, it will attract outside interest from producers of all uh, shapes and sizes. And so I think that's the important thing. And, and some of these are on, on a faster track than others. Um, and they're going to get some outside value, outsized valuations, I should say, if they're shorter in terms of the timelines to be brought into production. But as I said, it's a very, very well diversified portfolio. And um, Alistair's number one job is to come in and sequence things in a way that maximizes value for gold mining shareholders. That's what he's trying to determine right now is where do we best allocate capital to get the best bang for a buck uh, within that portfolio of 14 uh, deposits. Yeah. Now you've mentioned a couple of times that uh, the market is value, valuing you very low, um, where it should be about a hundred. I think you said it's five to $10 or whatever. Um, but as far as like your own projections, I mean, do you try to make those more conservative? So let's say like, well, if gold was only 1300 an ounce, like we'd still make a lot of money. Or if our reserves were only 50% of what we think they are, we'd still make a lot of money. Or how do you look at that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our reserves are done at long-term gold prices at $1,200 an ounce. How much? It's just $1,200. Okay. So it's well below where we are today, which is just north of $1,900 an ounce. And that's not untypical in the sector. Um, you know, established producers, uh, the more mature companies, um, and, and we're a mature developer at gold mining with, with a very experienced management team and board. Uh, we're very, very careful and sober about the uh, underlying estimates and assumptions we use to calculate our reserves. Um, and obviously that gets adjusted over time and gold flies to three or $4,000 an ounce and clearly the market's looking for us to apply a higher cutoff when we're doing our reserve. But right now we're using one that's well south of, of where the gold price currently trades. 
Now, another, another risk um, that um, maybe is there, I, I get asked this question all the time and uh, I have my own thoughts about it, but I want to get yours. And it's, it's a narrative that's been really pushed by somebody that's really taken hold. And I get asked this question all the time, but it's the political risk. It's about being in a country without U.S. swap lines. I'm sure you've heard that narrative before. Um, tell me what you think about that. Well, how, how much, or I should say, how much risk is there for that? What do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, look, um, the mining business is inherently risky as it is because of its capital intensity, because of the long lead times to production, uh, because of the technical risk, you're, you're engineering major construction. Um, there's, there's a lot that can go wrong in the mining business. You don't want to exasperate your risk profile by taking on too much political risk, in my view. And I've never really operated in countries that didn't want us. Um, in, in the 12 plus mines that I've, I've been involved in the construction of, they've all been in jurisdictions that have an established mining code uh, that welcome foreign direct investment where you can get your capital in and out of the country cut readily. That's extremely important. And that's how we're looking at things is through that lens, both in gold mining and gold royalty. We want to be in jurisdictions that welcome mining. So I think that's it's a very, very important factor. Because there's a lot of mineral wealth in third world countries that are never going to get developed because they don't have proper governance in place. Right. And you can't get your capital out, you know, and you can get your capital in, but it's like a roach motel. You can't right. get out. And yeah. so we want to avoid those sorts of situations in my view. So it is a real risk, maybe not so much having to have the, the, the dollar swap lines, but at least making sure that you're in a country that's politically friendly and allows you to get your capital in and out. That's exactly right. Got it's it. Really important. Okay. Well, uh, man, that is so much good information. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, now we talked about gold royalty corp and we talked about gold mining. Now you said there's one company you've listed the ticker symbol. So in the description down below, I'm going to go ahead and put the links to the website and the ticker symbols for everybody. Um, is there anywhere else that people should go to like follow up, maybe follow you or keep up with the company? Well, if you go to goldmining.com, um, we have a tab in there for gold royalty. Um, we will be, um, as we spin the company out into its own public vehicle, creating its own website. But if you want to keep up on the developments within both gold mining and gold royalty, because until we go public and, and separate and become independent, our, our fortunes are inextricably linked. So uh, you'll be on that uh, website. And as I said, if you want exposure to what we're doing in gold royalty, just buy gold mining stock. You'll, you'll really get the royalty exposure for free by buying the development stage company in gold mining. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's so much good information, David. And I really just appreciate you taking the time to, to come and talk to me and talk to the audience because uh, we are so interested in gold. I've been talking about it a lot. I, I'm I'm calling it the trade of the decade. I just don't see any way out of the mess that the central banks have gotten themselves into. And there's just one way out, which is printing money. And I only see gold going one direction. Um, so that's, that's my opinion. I, I appreciate you coming and sharing your, your information with us. Thanks very much for having me on.